1: Hello, welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Luke Thompson, one of the hosts of the channel. Today I'll be speaking with Brooke Shednek about her recent book, Thailand's International Meditation Centers, Tourism and the Global Commodification of Religious Practices, published by Routledge in 2015 as part of its Religion and Contemporary Asia series. In this monograph, Shednek examines Buddhist meditation centers in Thailand and draws our attention to the way in which these institutions have creatively, though not always intentionally, altered Buddhist meditation and the meditation retreat format, so as to make them accessible to the large number of non-Thai meditators who come to these centers. While at first glance the topic of meditation centers in Thailand might appear fairly narrow and easy to delimit, Shetnik shows that to understand both the histories of these centers and the ways in which they currently operate, one must locate these institutions in the broader contexts of Southeast Asian history European intellectual and colonial history, and Buddhism's encounter with modernity. After covering the rise of mass meditation movements, a process that can be traced in part to developments in late 19th century Burma, Shednek turns to the way in which the meditation centers where she conducted her fieldwork have created two systems within a single institution, one for Thai retreatants and the other for foreigners. Not only does the social interaction between teacher and student differ in the two systems, but so too does the way in which meditation is taught. Thai participants understand meditation as but one of a number of activities that are meaningful according to a worldview based on Buddhist ideas and values, and they are taught accordingly. Non-Thai meditators, who are almost exclusively from the West, are instead presented with meditation as a secular practice that is to be understood in psychological and universalistic terms and is largely a matter of individual development. This difference is in turn related to the motivations and preconceptions about Buddhism in Asia that foreign meditators bring to the retreat. Shednik positions such motives and assumptions in the larger contexts of Buddhist modernism, Orientalism, and the history of European views of Buddhism, both of the Enlightenment and Romantic varieties. As part of this discussion, she clarifies the way in which many first time retreatants associate Buddhist meditation with nature or, alternatively, see it as a form of therapy through which individual transformation and healing can be realized. However, Western objectifications of Buddhism constitute but one aspect of Shednek's multifaceted exploration of the international meditation centers, and her novel research into the ways in which individual meditation centers, the World Buddhist Federation, and the Tourism Authority of Thailand have portrayed and promoted these centers —this is the commodification in the subtitle of her book— demonstrates that the repackaging of Buddhist meditation is neither a wholesale adaptation of Western modernity nor a conscious attempt at securing tourist spending, but rather a creative adaptation through which Buddhism and meditation are rendered intelligible and meaningful to those who are culturally unfamiliar with both. And Shetnik is careful to point out that this dynamic is as old as Buddhism itself. Her Buddhism's two-and-a-half-millennia survival was possible only because Buddhism was translated into the languages of and adapted to the thinking of those cultures to which it spread. One of the most satisfying features of the book is the inclusion of excerpts from some of the interviews that Shednik conducted with over 60 international meditation teachers and students. In addition, we find fascinating descriptions of the retreat centers at the center of her research, and of the details of daily life during a retreat. Schedule, food, ritual, and so on. This work will be of particular value to those interested in modern Thai Buddhism, Buddhist modernism, religion and modernity, Buddhist meditation, Southeast Asian history, and the legacy of Orientalism. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books in Buddhist Studies. Today I'm with Brooke Shedneck, and we're going to be talking about her recent book, Thailand's International Meditation Centers. Tourism and the Global Commodification of Religious Practices, published by Routledge in 2015. Brooke Shednek is a lecturer in Buddhist studies at the Institute of Southeast Asian Affairs at Chiang Mai University in Thailand. Her research focuses on the intersection of Buddhism and modernity, as well as on the emerging global Buddhist landscape. Brooke, welcome to the show, and thank you for taking the time to speak with me today.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So I wanted to begin by asking how you came to the study of religion and or Thailand and or Buddhism. um, And then more specifically, uh, how you came to the study of international, specifically international meditation centers in Thailand. Mm
0: -hmm. My interest in um, Thailand and Buddhism all began with uh, my study of, of my major in religious studies At Boston University where I went to undergraduate um, and I really became interested in things like anthropology and Asia and and religion at that time and it was one seminar that I took about meditation actually and that incorporated a part where we would go to a center within Boston every week and keep a meditation journal and that kind of sparked an interest in kind of the study of meditation. And that, you know, made me, I always kind of drew back on that, that paper that I wrote and that journal that I kept to, um, as, as something that, that I was really interested in, in pursuing further. And then um, when I went to Harvard Divinity School, I maintained an interest in Buddhist studies, but I wasn't quite sure where. I would land within the landscape of of Buddhism. And uh, it was really a seminar with Donald Swearer about, um, it was called like Sangha State and Society in Southeast Asia, that that really opened up for me what um, the world of Southeast Asia is like and and how Buddhism is so interesting there and all the themes of post-colonialism and the contemporary ways of practice there. And from there, I knew that I wanted to study some aspect of Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had never, I'd never been there or, or anything. Um, but I would, I was asking other advisors there, like, and Blackburn was there for a year at the time, and, mm-hmm. um, they they kind of told me, well, you should, if you're interested in Southeast Asia, you should start with Thailand, because it's kind of easier to get your feet wet there. And you can just start, and you know, on the ground, and and see from there. You can jump off to other countries if you if you want. Sure. Um, so I I took that advice, um, and but at the same time, I was interested in in Buddhism in America, in Western forms of Buddhism, and I was reading a lot about that as well while I was considering a PhD, and so. I was thinking that the best kind of way to formulate what I was most interested in was to look at the kind of interface and, and cross-cultural encounters between between Western Buddhism and Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. And uh, Thailand really did turn out to be the best place to do this because tourism is so important in Thailand, and there has been such a long history of engagement and interest in um you know, Westerners, uh, and um, so I thought, and and then I remembered, you know, about my interest in meditation, and I did a, after I went to Arizona State University working with Juliana Schober, I, I did a kind of a summer experiment in Thailand to see what, what I could find and what I could do a project about there, and as soon as I was there, I found a book about, Guidebook that I write about in my in my book eventually a a handbook about international meditation centers, and that really made me think. Well, nothing has been done about all of these different centers, and this is you know exactly what I'm interested in this this cross cultural um, encounter and exchange. And from there, I visited a number of international meditation centers. I did a kind of test run. At one uh, retreat center here in Chiang Mai because I wasn't sure if I could do the fieldwork that would be necessary. So I I did a kind of experiment there and and considered if I could do the retreat because I had done meditation before, but not an extended period where I would sleep over the center for a number of nights. Mm -hmm. So so I did that and I thought, well, this this could you know, I could handle it and it would it would be an interesting um, thing to pursue so I, I I had to do a lot to continue to um, prepare for for the research and figure out which sites I would I would be able to to research with, um, but I eventually did get a, a Fulbright grant to go back, and that's when I, I began my research in this in this topic of international meditation centers in Thailand.
1: Great, so. Um so, yeah, that actually leads me to the um, second question, which concerns your actual field work. Um, and in the beginning of the book, you talk about how you went about gathering the data for the book. And this included interviews with over 60 international meditation teachers and meditators, uh, participant observation, and so forth. So, would you just describe the field work that you undertook in this research pro- project?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I knew that I had to do the retreats because that was the best way to be able to interview the uh, international meditators and to get the respect of the teachers who I really needed for my uh, for my uh, research. Because I wasn't able, you know, to interview. There's been you know hundreds of thousands of international meditators throughout history, but there have only been a few teachers. Um, comparatively speaking. So I really wanted the teachers to be on board with my research. Sure. And, I, and from Joanna Cook's book, I mean, she talks about how it's it's so important. It was so important for her and getting established in the temple where she um, ordained to to do the work and show the respect for the tradition. And so I knew that I was going to go on the retreats and I would do... About a retreat every month, Mm -hmm. so I could have some time to kind of come back to to the world and write up write up my notes and and things like that. Um, And when I it was a little bit complex because there are basically there's you know a lot of international meditation centers, and I had to choose which were the ones that were going to be the most important for my for my research. Um, and so I, I wound up having the criteria about the meditation center being a part of the mass lay meditation movement. So I went to some of the forest meditation retreats, part of the, the Thai forest uh, tradition, but it was very clear early on that was not part of the mass lay meditation movement. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to make sure that I was going to the centers that offered instruction for lay people in, in a group. Um, Setting where a lot of people would be there meditating together with a teacher, guiding them, um, rather than the kind of very individualized and monastic-oriented practice at the forest, um, the Thai forest temples. Um, And so I knew that I had to figure out which uh, centers would be the best, and I wanted to get it to be representative of all of the areas of Thailand that were popular with tourists, because this is where the – best-known international meditation centers are, they're in the tourist centers. So central Thailand, where Bangkok is, Mm -hmm. southern Thailand, where the islands and the beaches are, and the north, where Chiang Mai is, and it's kind of like the cultural center uh, for tourists to visit temples and and do other types of cultural activities. And so I focused on these three areas, and the the one, because I lived in Chiang Mai, it was easy to go to those retreats and then go back for interviews if I needed to. But when I went to the ones in the, in central Thailand or Southern Thailand, I really needed to coordinate beforehand and talk to the teachers and make sure they knew that I was going to be in doing the retreat, but then also conducting inter, uh, conducting interviews, conducting research there. And if that would be okay. Yeah. And, and we usually worked out a system where I would first participate in the retreat, and then usually after the retreat was over, I would then, I would then go and interview the teacher. So it wasn't a part of my retreat because they still wanted me to be able to experience meditation without really um, having my interviews or my research get in the way of that. Right. And, and so they said, um, okay, you know, you can you can do it afterwards. But if they didn't have time to do it afterwards, then sometimes I would do it during the retreat if the teacher was going to leave or something. Um, but but they did. I found they were interested in in my research. Uh, they didn't think that it was you know as important as attaining stream entry or getting into, you know, meditation as a way of self-transformation, but they did understand it as something that would be important and relevant for other possibly international meditators. So, um, and with, with me willing to participate in their meditation retreat, I was able to get them interested also in, in my research.
1: Great. So, um, so so in the, Getting um, sort of a bit more into the content of the book, in the second chapter, you um, you discuss the place of Buddhist meditation and specifically uh, what is called vipassana meditation in Buddhist soteriology. So, um, and then you also discuss the way in which this practice and ideal, which was not always central um, in Buddhism in Thailand, uh, became so important for the forms of modern Thai Buddhism found at the international meditation centers that you study or that you studied. So I want to leave aside the question of meditation and Buddhism more broadly, uh, but I did want to ask you to say a few words on what you describe as the relatively recent popular interest in Vipassana meditation um, and perhaps situating it in the in the context of Buddhist modernism. Sorry, that's a bit of a broad question, but
0: Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I'll I'll try. Uh, Yeah. I think that it's interesting when you look at the mass lay meditation movement and how it seems kind of, you know, ordinary now to see lots of people in a room meditating together Mm -hmm. that are, you know, lay and sometimes monastics mixed in when um, in pre-modern meditation, you know, before, the 1950s, this this was a really a prim, a primarily a monastic pursuit, and only a minority of monastics would be engaging in meditation, and they had these kind of individualized meditation techniques that were based on the relationship of the teacher to his disciple. Um, but when the mass meditation movement arrives in in Myanmar through, um, Eric Brown talks about through Lady Sayadaw and then through Mahasi Sayadaw, um, in the 1950s, and we have this new institution of the of the meditation center. That is what you know really opens up the interest for international meditators or people interested in Buddhism in Asia um, who are who are lay people and aren't um, are interested in meditation. And so, in the 1970s is when this uh, institution of the meditation center comes to Thailand, and it really comes to Thailand within the context of of post-colonialism of a modernization where meditation can be used to show that Buddhism is a is a modern religion and it has these very modern techniques for understanding the mind and it's very scientific and based on your empirical investigation of yourself mm-hmm. and and so the, and and so that attracted not only in the international participants who would be um, interested in scientifically based practices, but also the elite in Thailand who wanted to seem like they, you know, the middle class who wanted to seem like they are participating in in the modern as well. And so this mass lay meditation movement, it allowed lay people to practice with the, with the same goals as, as monastics. Um, So it, it helped, in, in that way to, um, from a Buddhist point of view, to kind of propagate Buddhism so that more people could practice. And the lay people, they may not be able to memorize these large chunks of Buddhist scriptures or or do much you know, education about Buddhism, but they could maybe take a month and practice meditation and possibly um, reach stages on the path to enlightenment. And, and the mass lay meditation movement also Allowed Buddhists uh, to make these claims that they were that they are modern and that their their religion is universal in nature. And so now meditation is something that's portable and something that lay Buddhists and non-Buddhists can practice because now that the lay Buddhists are able to practice and they can have the same goals as monastics, then and and the, and the religion is supposed to be you know the practice is supposed to be universal. Then of course. Non-Buddhists, why not have them join as well? And they were interested in joining um, in Burma and and in Thailand. And um, we don't we don't really get to see the International Meditation Center as an institute um, until the nineteen nineties. But mm-hmm. before, there's there's some pockets of of interlocutors um, like Jack Cornfield when he was in in Thailand as a monk and. Um, uh, Joe Cummings, like people like this, who wrote the Lonely Planet Thailand. So people like this, they were able to um, be be interlocutors between between the two groups and kind of facilitate that that interest. Um, mm-hmm. And that is that that's what eventually led to the international meditation center later in the 1990s when there's more tourists.
1: Great. So so re- so really quite recent. I mean, specifically the international meditation centers then. Um, 1990s. Um, yeah. So now, as as in researching, doing the conducting the research for this book, you visited and conducted field work at a large number of um, international meditation centers. And for the purpose of the book, you've sort of narrowed um, your focus down to thirteen of them. And you note that among these thirteen, there's a great deal of diversity with regard to the schedule, meditation methods employed, and so on and so forth. Um, but could you give the listeners just a rough idea of what happens during a retreat at one of these meditation centers?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Um, a, a lot of international meditators do go into these retreats really having no idea what goes on at, at the retreat and learn as they go along. Um, because I, I thought it was interesting that it's it kind of meditation, it fits in with the other kinds of cultural experiences you you get as a tourist in Thailand, like like uh, taking a massage class or taking a Thai cooking class, and so then a meditation retreat just seems like another part of that. But of course, it <laughs> it's not as tourist um, friendly right. um, in terms of the services involved, and so um, so the international meditators. I mean, it all depends on where they choose to go, and a lot of them don't choose specifically. Uh, one place for any particular reason just because they're in the area or, and they see a sign or something like that, or they, they see it in their, in their guidebook. Um, but in there's different kinds of structures to the meditation uh, centers and in the North and in this in, in the central areas, it's more focused on individual retreats. So you would go to the retreat when you were free and when there was space for you at the, center so you would go there maybe and ask is you know can i come back in a few days will there be space for me then and then i want to stay you know for for 10 days they usually recommend that you stay for at least 10 days but some centers will let you stay for a shorter amount of time if um, you need to Um, but and then some of them are are a longer amount of time if you want to stay longer as well but most of them recommend 10 days and then um the other and so then you would come on your own and you would get an orientation to the center and you would meet your teacher and you would make an offering to your teacher. And the teacher would tell you a little bit about meditation and how, what what the type of practice is at that place. And he would give you an, an instruction on how to do the practice. And then you would just go and do it yourself. And then you would meet with the teacher every day for a short amount of time and the teacher just basically wants to know: Are you doing the meditation? How many hours are you doing? And do you have any questions? If not, then do more meditation. Mm-hmm. And so the teacher—it's just a really quick kind of check-in to see if you're progressing um, or not. And then, and then at the end, um, you you eat and you eat two meals a day at these centers usually, and you wear white clothing like the like the Thai lay Buddhists. Mm -hmm. Um, And then at the group retreats, everyone in that are in the South. And I think they basically set up those group retreats in the South to be bigger ones, bigger group ones. So they could um, just use the facility for those 10 days when the international meditators come. And then they use the facility again in the end of the month when the Thai meditators come. So in the group retreats in the south, there's a lot of tourists, and so it's easier to manage if they all come together sure. and they're yeah. from the top. And, um, and so in those, you come in a specific day, and everyone does everything together. And you would meet with the teacher maybe three or four times during the course of the 10 days, and it might be a longer interview that you would get there. And at those centers, usually you can wear just any kind of loose clothing that you want to wear because there's no Thai meditators there. So, um, it's not as important that you follow the white clothing rule is, is how they um, see that. Yeah. Um, and there, and you still keep the eight precepts there and eat, eat two meals a day, usually at those, at those group retreats. Okay. But yeah.
1: No, that's, that, that, no, that's great. That clarifies it. So, Um, Now, in these meditations that you're looking at, um, you note that the teachings and instructions given to... Well, let me just clarify first, because uh, some listeners will probably be wondering, are the international meditators and non-Thai meditators you're talking about primarily Western, or is that that not necessarily true?
0: No, they are primarily Western, and and that's what I found from my own observations, just being at the centers and and looking around. Um, and then also when talking to the teachers, because they have much more long-term knowledge of who comes to their center. Some Mm -hmm. of them have been for decades and I would ask the teachers, I would just refer to them as like, as international meditators in Thai when I would talk to them. Mm -hmm. Um, and when they would respond back to me, they would, they would normally just change it to, To the word for a West a white person, confirant, they would say, and so trying to be kind of inclusive, but when it was just kind of easier for them, and they just saw that's how they saw them as, you know, they're all they're all um, you know European and from America and Australia, and that's you know white people confirant, and so then we just use that word instead, and the it's difficult to actually find like data on this because they don't, they're not that interested in keeping
1: yeah. that,
0: but the two places do keep data on the nationalities in Chiang Mai, what uh, Rampeng and what uh, Doi Suthep. And there you can see over from like 2010 to 2015 or 14, that it's the top 10 are, are from Europe, especially Germany and and America uh, the United states and then and then Australia, and um, they really they round out the top ten and then below then, below them, like a very small minority is people from South America, maybe one or two per year, people from Africa, one or two per year, other nationalities from Southeast Asia, again, like one or two.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: and the only difference is that since two thousand and eleven or twelve, at Wat Rumpung, there has been an a large increase of Chinese meditators. All right, and so that was after I conducted my research because I conducted it from two thousand nine to two thousand ten, and they started coming in two thousand eleven. About huh. And and so, but I but I went back to check on that, and the um, monks there said that the Chinese meditators come all together for one month. Hmm. So. There's a large number of them, but they're not, you know, circulating in and out of yeah. the center. Yeah, and they're coming together as as a big group,
1: hmm. and
0: they're actually the number one group now oh, for wow. for that center. But that's only at that center. Mm-hmm. But it does show that the population might be changing. But at most of the centers, it's um, it's the westerners that okay. are taking advantage, right?
1: And so, and so, coming back to the teaching of um, of Thai, non-Thai, you note that the teachings and instructions given to the two groups um, are different. That there's a certain sort of, uh, and that in fact, there's oft- there are oftentimes the teachers for the Thai meditators and the teachers for the non-Thai meditators are different. Um, so I just wanted to ask you to explain this distribution of labor among the teachers, um, who teaches whom and why
0: hmm Yeah, the, um, the teachers that have the most knowledge and that I was most interested in talking to were those who teach both the Thai Buddhists and the international meditators. And so this is like your traditional Thai a Buddhist monk, a senior senior Buddhist monk, very experienced in meditation and was probably the abbot of the temple. And he knew he knows you know some English, so he's okay. At talking to the to the foreigners, and so these teachers really had a lot of knowledge about the differences between the two groups because they were always um, teaching both of them. Mm-hmm. And then, if the teacher didn't know enough English or they just wanted to teach the the time meditators, there wasn't a real senior monk who could do both at some of the centers. Then they would task the younger monks. And in some cases, these would be Thai monks. And in some cases, there's, especially in Chiang Mai, there's a number of foreign monks from Cambodia, and Laos, Nepal, and they are are studying English in university or for a master's degree at the university. And so because they know English, they'll be teaching uh, international meditators. And so they're a little bit younger, they have less experience teaching meditation, and they might teach a different Method their own kind of method than the center does and that I that I encountered um, in one or two places, um, and then also if there isn't such you know young Thai monk meditation te- or or international monk meditation teachers around who could facilitate the retreat in English, then some of the meditation centers have lay people um, Thai lay people who teach. The international um, meditators, and, and this really shows that the social spaces for meditation teaching are being opened because, you know, you, you wouldn't have a lay person teaching meditation. And mm-hmm. they're not going to be teaching the Thai meditators. So the Thai meditators usually get the older, senior monk. But yeah. so the international meditators have a much more variety of who they, who they get because they need someone who is somewhat fluent in English. Right. And so get Thai Buddhist laity, and they can get foreign, foreign uh, lay teachers who have been at a center for a while and really wanted to be a teacher and were authorized to teach by their Thai, um, by the Thai, by the abbot of the temple or by one of the other senior foreign lay teachers, if they don't know Thai. And um, also there are foreign ordained teachers and so all of these different kinds of teachers affect the ways that the international meditator understands and accesses the retreat because if they have a lay person who is a foreigner then they can interact at a very comfortable level but if they have the abbot of the temple and they have to bow and they have to do all of the um, appropriate protocol that they're not used to because the Thai meditators are around then they have a very different experience where they might be somewhat resistant to to doing that, um, but some of them, you know, want that kind of cultural different experience um, that they might see as more authentic. Um, so the the teachers and their social roles were um, very interesting for me in my research to analyze their their different types and how the international meditators interface with those their different social roles.
1: Yeah. Well, well, um, what you just said actually um, sort of links to um, or um, relates to the focus of Chapter 6 in which you focus on sort of the different, um, on the diversity of ways in which meditation is taught, specifically to international meditators. Um, And you point out at multiple places in the book that most non-Thai meditators attending these retreats, international meditators, are not familiar with Thai Buddhist culture or the larger Buddhist framework in which Buddhist meditation is to be understood. Um, And that this means that teachers uh, have to, to a certain extent sort of decontextualize the meditation and explain it in a language that these international meditators will understand. Um, And so you, 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 In in this chapter, you begin by noting that there's this uh, diversity of approaches on the part of teachers from those who are entirely unaware of the need for this sort of cultural translation, in a sense, um, and thus teach foreigners as they would Thai students, uh, to those who are not only aware of the cultural differences at play, but who even make a conscious effort to explain uh, meditation and these in a sort of uh, language that the students will understand. So... And here you make this distinction between four, uh, or not a distinction, but you sort of identify four different uh, translation strategies. Framing meditation in terms of individual choice and personal experience is one. Then explaining meditation in psychological language. Uh, a third one is presenting meditation as secular, or at least as non-religious, and a fourth one is portraying meditation uh, and Buddhism in universal in universal terms. Um now that's a lot but I was wondering if you could explain these four strategies um sort of what's going on here what what are the teachers doing in 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 um in sort of translating the meditation into this other language um and also I was wondering if you could please um address the extent to which these teachers are aware that they're doing this Mhm
0: Um yeah and I'll also talk a little bit about how i contextualize this idea of of translation within buddhism Um, because the translation is not obviously just from thai to english but it will be successful when it's from one set of cultural contexts and worldviews into into another Um, And so in the book, I contextualize this historically when we look at the the movement of Buddhism. And I particularly focus on in Southeast Asia, the kinds of um, translations that were made to incorporate folk religious practices and spirit shrines and spirit cults in Southeast Asia and how Buddhism interfaced with Taoism and Confucianism in East Asia and uh, even American Buddhism. We can we can see this and we can also see the ways that other mod, big modern Buddhist leaders, modern Buddhist figures, have a, have kind of set up models for translation, and I look specifically at Anagarika Dharmapala and Lady Sayadaw um, from Sri Lanka and from Burma, and mm-hmm. so not that these teachers that I am looking at the International Meditation Center is not that they're you know specifically saying, well, I got this idea from you know these people, but that there are these. These models, and that it fits within the broader understanding of Buddhism as it moves to new populations. And so, even though we're in Thailand, it's still um, a translation because of the of the population. Um, yeah. And I look at, and so I, when I was talking to the teachers, I identified these different strategies that you listed, and the teachers themselves, you know, they wouldn't talk about it that way. I mean, some of them would talk about psychology specifically, um, but they wouldn't put any kind of label on their strategy and say, for this type of meditator, I do this kind of strategy, or I like to do this kind of strategy here in this center. But um, they were aware of the, you know, especially the teachers who taught both Thai and international meditators, they were aware of how how they needed to change, adapt, uh, translate the retreat for the um, new audience and and so I talk about um, they they do some translation for individual choice or, or personal expression personal preferences mm-hmm. they make kind of open to the international meditator so they say you know if you don't want to chant if you don't want to do any Buddhist chanting if you feel like that's against your religion or you just don't want to that's up to you so that's an optional activity so basically, If there are other opportunities for any kinds of Buddhist practices outside of meditation, they're optional. Uh, But the only thing that you really have to do is the meditation because they understand from lots of uh, feedback from lots of meditators and from a teaching for a number of years, they understand that meditation is the most important thing to the international meditators, and that's why they came there. So they put that at the forefront of the retreat. When for Thai meditators, it's a major part of the retreat, but there's lots of other ways to um, make merit when you're in the meditation retreat. And that's something that, of course, international meditators are not familiar with. They're not interested in this idea of making merit. Um, but for so for a Thai meditator, taking the eight precepts is already a way of making merit. But for the international meditators, they have a choice that they can take at some, at some temples they're offered a choice. That they can take the eight precepts or they can take the five precepts. So that means basically that they can eat dinner. So they don't have to have that renunciation part of the, of the retreat. They can have three meals a day instead of two. Yes. And so they're not, yeah. they're not, you know, and for, so for a Thai Buddhist that wouldn't, you know, that, that would take away one of the major points of the mm-hmm. retreats. Um, right. Uh, to To be disciplined, to make merit for uh, sacrifice uh, during the retreat period, um, and in terms of the translation for uh, secular, uh, showing that they want some of the teachers, they want to show that meditation is a secular enterprise, and so it's difficult because a lot of them are at a center that's really, that's connected to a temple, or is that is that is totally within a within a temple. And there's lots of of religious activities going on all throughout the day, and there's lots of rituals happening. There's ordination ceremonies. There's um, lots of opportunities to do devotional practices. Um, but the but the teachers there want the international meditators to just focus on meditation, and even if you're a meditator, an international meditator, who's interested in possibly doing some of the devotional uh, aspects, at um, some centers they'll say, you know, why don't you wait until your retreat is over? Because they won't—they don't want them to, to be doing the devotional activities just to get out of meditation, and so they're not sure of their sincerity uh-huh. when they <laughs> When they do want to do the to like go to the chanting with with the Thai Buddhists or, yeah. or do some circumambulation, right. um, But when I was there, for me, they knew that I was interested in studying about Thai Buddhism, so it was fine for me. They said I could go and you know participate in the Thai Buddhist you know kind of world of the meditation center when when they were connected. Yeah. But but they said for the other international meditators, they would have to really see if they were sincere or not, and they would mm-hmm. usually tell just wait until your retreat is over and then you can get into. Doing some things with the Thai Buddhists, if you want.
1: Yeah, the, 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 this attitude, this attitude on the part of um, certain international meditators is actually exemplified in a quote you have near the end of the book, um, where one commentator notes concerning a particular uh, retreat or meditation center that it has it also has a good reputation, it seems, but seems a bit heavy on the Buddhism influence. Just seems a little funny that I have to bring eleven lotus flowers, etc and circle around the stupa three times and do all this chanting. Does that actually have any benefit <laughs> which um, <laughs> sort of exemplifies attitude so this is actually a good segue into something you focus on in chapter four, which is the motives um, behind uh, international meditation international meditators. Decision to you know go to a meditation center in the first place, but before we actually go into that, I did want to uh, link this to something you talk about in chapter seven, uh, where you discuss the way in which certain protocols and rituals that are part of the regular Vipassana retreat for Thai mm-hmm. meditators serve as external forces that sort of mold the self, so to speak. Um, and you note the international meditators because they are allowed to, um, as you just explained, and often choose to abstain from such protocols and rituals have a very different experience. Um, Mm -hmm. What do you mean, what exactly do you mean by this? What's this relationship between these, you know, bowing to the Buddha statue and going, um, Mm -hmm. you know, circumambulating stupas and Mm -hmm. sort of the molding of the self?
0: Yeah, how does that relate to meditation, right? Like this um, person wanted to know that that um, the retreat for Thai Buddhists and Theravada Buddhists in general, it allows for lots of ways to uh, mold the self or do these kinds of practices of the self. And one of them is the meditation that allows for transformation from the inside out. And then there are all these other kind of these other devotional experiences, devotional practices and other um, ways besides meditation to cultivate the self from the outside in so these are these are called practices of the self when you cultivate the self uh, externally to make a change internally and so these are things like bowing to the buddha it cultivates respect it uh cultivates humbleness um wearing the modest clothing obviously cultivates modesty um humility and what I found was that when these teachers were doing their translations of the retreat for the international meditators, what they were essentially doing was removing all of these ways to transform the self externally. So they were removing all of the practices of the self. And they would mostly do this when the time, when the time meditators were not there. And so when they had a kind of space apart, that was the group retreats or there was a separate space for the international meditation, um, the international meditators. And so one example of that that I I really like is that a one center uh, where they have one one center that's for the time meditators and then they have a special center that's for the international meditators. But it's really kind of connected, it's kind of close by, and the international meditators move bef- between both spaces. And so there, you can see that the international meditators um, are, you can see that they act, they're they told to act one way when they're with the Thai meditators. That does signal a cultivation of the external, of this practice of the self. And then when they're in the international meditation center area, they they are not asked to do those practices. And so one of the examples is that women wear a kind of white scarf that wraps around the chest called a sabai in um and all all Thai Buddhists um female meditators will, will wear this because you're wearing white clothing and so it helps to cover up if anything's um see through so it, it creates this modesty. And when the international meditators go to the Thai side, they're they're told, you know, wear your Sabai when you're over there. But then when you come back to the International Meditation Center, you can remove that. And so it doesn't enforce the ways that the Sabai is meant to cultivate modesty. It enforces that this is a Thai custom. This is just something you have to do because mm-hmm. we're in Thailand. But it doesn't help you in the retreat at all. It doesn't help you cultivate the self.
1: So then... Sort of moving from that into the sort of motives um, behind um, international meditators, most of whom are Westerners, um, getting into the motives um, for going to a a meditation center in the first place, drawing on interviews with um, these international meditators, you um, explain some of these motivations um, and also some of the reactions that these international meditators uh, have after they come to a international meditation center for the first time, um, and you note that two views that serve as motivating factors are the association of Buddhism with nature and the idea of meditation, or at least the meditation retreat as a sort of therapy. Um, I was wondering if you could explain these two.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the international meditators in the retreats they have, I as I um, talk about in the book, they have these kind of particular imaginaries of meditation and so this is a term imaginaries that's used within tourist studies to talk usually about a place but i'm using it to talk about the practice of meditation and it has to do with how the ideas of meditation are formed by the individual as well as connected to a societal ideas and so they kind of reinforce each other and and we can talk about the advertising and the societal ideas later but for the individual um, motivations they draw on these imaginaries of meditation. And so they, um, there's, a, you know, some range and some diversity, but what I, I found a lot of international meditators discussing were these two kinds of ways to um, access the retreat. And one was that they're really hoping for a place to kind of get away from, uh, in a, a natural setting, lots of greenery is what they were looking for in their retreat. And so they had this really kind of romantic idea of meditation as a place to really reflect and find the self. And so this is you know obviously not what meditation is actually for, but that's what um, their idea of, of meditation was. And so these, um, International meditators would be very happy when they were in some of these some of these meditation centers that were so beautiful in the mountains or by the sea. But if they were at a center that there was a lot of construction or that was really close to the city and they felt kind of trapped, there wasn't really much nature going on, then they were not happy with their experience. Um, but the ones that the other kind of group was interested in meditation that could be used as as therapy. So they were interested in meditation as kind of healing, as promoting their overall well-being. So they weren't really interested in um, the place itself or nature, but a way to find some healing for themselves or whatever they were going through. So a lot of these people would have some kind of backstory that, that did make them travel to Thailand or, you know, they're having some kind of issue where they were, where they were from with, you know, loved ones or with their job. And they really needed um, time to retreat and, and figure things out. And so these, these meditators were more interested in finding a teacher that could help them. So looking, you know, kind of like for a therapist. And if they found a teacher that was, so they would be more interested in like a lay teacher who, could speak really good english that was a probably foreigner like them because they would understand what they were going through more um and so they would be kind of less interested in in the the kind of authentic you know thai buddhist experience with a senior thai buddhist monk but you know some of them they might be okay with that but that's the kind of um, interest that they had that they were looking for it as as um therapy
1: yeah I think, yeah, I mean, talking about these motivations, actually, um, you know, as I was reading, I realized how, um, in one sense, how uh, unwieldy a topic this is, because to study these international meditation centers, it seems, you have to really um, account for a lot of very large sort of historical trends, including, you know, the European Enlightenment, uh, Romanticism, Orientalism, Mm -hmm. Uh, modernization, colonialism. So, um, and I mean, I think you've done, you've sort of connected those dots very uh, clearly in this book, but um, it does make what is um, at first glance, maybe a sort of very confined topic, you know, international meditation centers in Thailand. Mm -hmm. In fact, something that's, uh, you know, has so many connections that it's uh, yeah potentially unwieldy, but, Yeah, that's right. So I I I want to um, elsewhere in the book, and you discuss what you call the commodification of Buddhism. In fact, the word commodification appears also in the subtitle of the book. And many listeners would probably take the term commodification. Well, I don't know. I assume many listeners would take the term commodification to indicate an undesirable process whereby an object or activity is sort of stripped of its use or cultural value and transformed into something that can be valued in uh, monetary units or in terms of its exchange value. Uh, However, you claim that commodification, quote-unquote, allows for creative engagement and adaptation of the Buddhist tradition. So what do you mean by commodification here? What's being commodified, by whom, and uh, for whom? And in what way does this allow for creative adaptation?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found that when talking about international meditation centers, when I was first doing the research, that everybody was asking about money. You know, is this why they're getting these foreigners in here? Is it for economic reasons? And so the what I focused on was the ways that the practice of meditation itself is being commodified for these International meditators, or for people you know, who would potentially come to Thailand and practice meditation. And so, when you go to the meditation retreat, you're not there to spend money, right? They're actually kind of bad tourists in that they don't spend money because <laughs> they're just a confined location. Um, however, the um, bodies that advertise Thailand and uh, promote Buddhism in Thailand do want to promote their um, their uh, Buddhism and their meditation retreats and their teachers. And so, what you can get out of monetarily out of the practice of meditation is the kind of plane fare to Thailand, the hotels and meals before and after the retreat. And then, these international meditators are actually not the kind of cash cows that some people would expect them to be. And that because they don't have the, the practice of donation in their kind of cultural values. Mm -hmm. And so when they go to a retreat, a lot of these are backpackers, so they don't have much money anyway. And so a lot of them are at a loss for what, what to donate um, because that is what um, the, every meditation center says that the, the teachings are for free. That's based on donation, and for some of the retreats that are just foreigners, they have a mandatory fee that they make clear covers the food. Yeah, and every anything else you want to donate for the teaching is on top of on top of that your own donation. Um, and so the um, the ways that um, meditation is being. Um, Commodified looks at how these tourists are or these you know tourists who become international meditators are um, a part of the you know, capitalist economy of Thailand before and after the retreat, but during the retreat, you know they're part of the of the economy of merit. So Buddhism has this um, you know economy of merit that goes along with generosity and dana, and they fit they fit into that when they're A part of the retreat but of course the temple itself is connected to a wider social community and there's um, lots of examples of of the temple as connected to commerce that a lot of the um, in popular culture or in you know scholarship and in for some a lot of these international meditators kind of Uh, has a a false ring to it that they are commodifying the Buddhist practices, the Buddhist temple. And I don't want to be at a place that has a coffee shop or that has food stalls or that has lotto around it. And so even some of them um, that I talked to, they, they, um, they just left the retreat when they saw that it had these kinds of um, commodifications around the temple so the the international meditators are not as they're not as um they're they're kind of within this idea of of popular culture that you know meditation should be separated but the temple is is um embedded within this wider frame of the of the community and part of the of the um needs funds to survive as a temple um sure. And so the, the other ways that meditation is uh, commodified is through, mainly through advertisements that promote meditation uh, to tourists from abroad. And that's the, I look at uh, two of the, uh, three of these, the, the Tourism Authority of Thailand's informational pamphlets on meditation and um, the World Fellowship of Buddhists handbooks for international meditation centers and they both indicate that that you would want to go to this meditation retreats because they are fit within both of these poles of of the kind of romantic idea of meditation as it's going to be in nature and also that it's a rational practice that anyone can do and that will help you in your life from the busy kind of life that you're leading uh, supposedly In the West, and then the retreat pamphlets at the retreat themselves—they often also take these words too. They might even say things like "Find yourself here in in you know the blissful our blissful center," and so they really kind of uh, promote that. And I look also at the images that they use to promote meditation, where they show the international meditator meditating alone in the in the forest, all by themselves, and they show these kinds of images that you. You know, probably wouldn't get. You wouldn't be alone in the forest. And this is <laughs> part of the mass lay meditation movement. So, um, that you are you are in a group, and you are a lot of times mixed with Thai Buddhists. And um, so they so they they commodify the practice itself for the international meditators in order to get them to come to the meditation center. And so I've uh, agree with you know, other scholars that I mentioned. in in the book, um, like uh, Benita Sinha and Justin McDaniel, and they talk about commodification as a way to um, create new communities, as a way to uh, spread the religion and have these kinds of um, openness and adaptation for the new audiences to come in. And that's certainly um, been what has been the function of these kind of promotional activities, that it has allowed much more information to be spread so that international meditators can come and do the retreat. And then I talk about the kind of effects of this and how some meditators, you know, it's just kind of a one-off and they, and they don't, you know, think about it anymore. But for a significant minority, it um, can be quite transformational. And they do come to have a deep connection with Thai Buddhism. They might become teachers and they might help to spread Buddhism abroad. Uh, through the networks of their of their teacher, they might open up a center or become a teacher in a center of their teacher's name in their home country.
1: Great. So, um, we've taken a lot of your time, um, but I, I, I should emphasize for listeners that we've really only scratched the surface. I haven't even mentioned a lot of the uh, really nice descriptions of individual um, meditators whom you interview and individual teachers. Um, So there's a lot of uh, really rich uh, description in the book that and, um, you know, obviously, we've only been able to scratch the surface. But as a final question, I wanted to ask if there's anything that you're working on currently.
0: Yeah, so in my book, there's kind of these two trajectories of tourism and meditation, and I'm kind of taking both of them in new directions. And I while I was doing the research for about meditation, I found that there are other kinds of ways to engage tourists that are outside of meditation. That include these other kinds of programs, like entering into a temple to kind of try on living as a Buddhist, or teaching English for the monks, or um, just learning about the monastic lifestyle. And so, I'm I'm working on this kind of uh, these kinds of programs connected to Buddhism and tourism, how the monastic life and tourists and tourism intersects, uh, especially here in Northern Thailand where there's a lot of these programs. And so we just had a workshop uh, that was called Buddhist Tourism in Asia. And uh, me and my uh, co-organizer, and we are looking to, we had a bunch of uh, other people come and we're looking to have a a edited volume on uh, the varieties of, buddhist tourism in asia um so so i'm working on that as, as well as looking at um meditation memoirs from throughout like from the 1950s till today and looking at how these meditation memoirs change and how we can understand the ideas about meditation by non-buddhists through these memoirs uh, over time mm-hmm.
1: well that sounds really fascinating so we'll look forward to um to the edited volume and your future and your future research that brings us to the end of the interview i want to to thank you again um for speaking with me today and also to thank all our listeners so that's it for today's new books in buddhist studies and we'll see you next time